we're in this part three of this series, Joyride. Going through one of my favorite books, the book of Philippians. If you were to ask people this question, if you were to survey them, you know, it used to be you had to survey people in person. Now you've got like Survey Monkey and all these survey tools where people will send you an email and you can click on and do their survey. Do you remember when you used to go to the, did anybody ever see those people at the mall doing the surveys? Does anybody even go to the mall anymore? The mall's kind of dead right now, right? But if you were to go to the mall, do the people with the clipboard still walk around the mall? I don't, I don't think so, right? You remember, so you got to tell, you got to tell your teenagers about this because when I was a kid or when my kids were little and you went to the mall and the people with the clipboard kind of, they started coming your way, you avoid them, you, you know, you don't look at them, like don't talk to them, don't talk to them. You know, it's like they're not drug dealers, but you treat them like a drug, you know, it's like because they, they would come up and they say, hey, can I have 37 minutes of your time? And, um, and, and they'd ask you all these questions. If you were to ask people a survey question and ask them, what do you think is the path to happiness? What do you think is the path to joy or happiness in your life? Most people in America would say something like, well, you got to get an education, and then you got to get a job, a career, and then you got to get married, and then you got to have kids, you got to have a family, and then you make a lot of money, and then you retire. And that's the American dream. That's the American path to happiness and joy, get an education, get a job, get a, a husband or a wife, get a family, get a lot of money, and retire for your golden years. The problem with that is we all know people who took that path. We all know people who have all those things. They got an education, they got a job, they, they got a family or two even, and, and they made a whole lot of money. They might have even retired. Yet they're the crankiest person we know. Because that path, although it's the American dream, is not the biblical way to find joy and happiness in life. In fact, the Bible says that the path to joy and happiness is something you'd never guess in your wildest dreams. The Bible says the path to joy and happiness is through humility. And that is crazy for us. Because if you notice the title of today's message is The Joy of Humility. And if you had known that the title of today's message was The Joy of Humility, you would be home watching. You'd be like, oh, by the way, good, good to have all of you who are watching online and out in the pavilion. I know it's a holiday weekend. A lot of people are out of town. Thank you for joining us. But really, if everybody had known, if I didn't know it was a joy of humility, I might not have tuned in. I might not even have come because this is not a subject that we cozy up to or we look forward to. If, uh, if there was a movie out today for 4th of July weekend called The Joy of Humility, none of us would be, would be ordering our tickets. If, if Netflix were to drop a new series... And it was hit today. It was like, we're, you got to get us out on time, Pastor Jerry. We got to go home. We got to, we got to binge watch the joy of humility. Because nobody wants to talk about. Because when we think of the word humility, we almost associate it with humiliation. Although those words sound alike, they don't mean anything alike. And when we say the path to joy, the path to happiness is through humility. We're, we're like, what? How in the world would humility make me happy and joyful? Well, there's actually many, many reasons throughout the Bible of why humility is the key that unlocks happiness and why pride is the thing that guarantees unhappiness in our life. And I can give you a lot of reasons. In fact, there are enough reasons why humility is positive in our life and why pride is bad. There's enough reason for me to do a whole series on humility. And I would do that, but nobody would come. You come to the first message and go, humility, a whole series on, how many weeks is this? Okay. Because while pride guarantees unhappiness and humility guarantees joy and happiness, I just want to focus on just one aspect of that today. And it's the, it's the aspect of, of humility or pride 
that causes the most unhappiness in our life, and that's the aspect of, of, of conflict. Does everybody agree that a conflict causes unhappiness in our life? And we live in a world of a lot of conflict, don't we? You can have a lot of money. You can have a great career. You can even be famous and successful. But if we have conflict in our relationships, we have no happiness in our life. We're unhappy. If, if we're ever going to learn how to be happy over the long-term course of life or how to have joy, we have to learn how to reduce conflict in our life. And this is where humility comes in. The Bible has a lot to say about humility and a lot to say about reducing conflict in our life because pride causes conflict. In fact, the great proverb 13.10 says, pride leads to conflict. Now, we live in a society that's, I mean, this is, this is our Independence Day weekend. We are celebrating our freedom as Americans. Yet America has never been more polarized, has it? There has never been more conflict in America than there is right now. You've got the right and the left. You've got Republicans and Democrats. You've got, you've got people who believe one way and people who believe another way. Never before have we had so much conflict in our lives and in our relationships. Because there's people in your family that don't vote the way you vote. And you're in conflict. In fact, there's people in your church. Do you realize that half the country does not vote the way you vote? Half. In fact, half, the, half your church doesn't vote the way you vote. You know, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. You know, Jesus votes the way I vote. Jesus didn't vote. I might take up his example before it's all over. Yeah. You just get, ever since the invention of social media, all we have is conflict, conflict, conflict. I joked around last week. I said, all you have to do, it doesn't matter what you post on social media, you go on Facebook today and you just say, good morning, and there will be conflict over that. It's not so good. How come you think it's good? What's good to me? You know, you're more than mine. Oh, my goodness. And I said that last week, and people sent me all kinds of examples. Thank you so much. Pride leads to conflict. And folks, we all have pride. And that's why we all have conflicts in our life. And if you think to yourself, man, I am not proud. I am so humble. I, I mean, some people, I know, they are proud of their humility. Right? This passage tells us that this is something that we can all work on. And everyone that has conflicts in their life needs to work on. Because what we have is the greatest example written about the relationship between harmony and humility and happiness and joy. Because this passage tells us, the first couple of verses, it tells us that harmony is what creates happiness. So you have to have harmony in your life to be happy and to have joy. Joy comes from harmony. And then the next couple of verses, what we're going to learn is that humility is what creates the harmony that leads to the joy and the happiness. And then in the end, what we see is Jesus gives us, Paul takes three examples from Jesus' life about how to model humility to have harmony, which leads to happiness and joy in your life. Let me read you the second chapter of Philippians, the first 11 verses. It says, is there any encouragement? This will be on the back screen. It will be on your devices. If you're watching online, it's also at the top of your outline there. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Circle the word humble right up there at the top. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him 
to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a very, very powerful passage. And it talks about how humility leads to harmony, and harmony leads to happiness and joy in our lives. And Paul says that this is the model for all of our relationships. This is the model for your friendships. This is the model for your relationships with your kids. This is the model for your marriage. This is the model for your relationship with those in your HOA that just drive you crazy. In any other relationship, harmony. So I'm going to read you verse 2 again. Because Paul writes, he says, Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and work together with one mind and purpose. And then in the next verses, Paul explains this path to happiness and path to joy is the path of humility leading to harmony leading to happiness not career not education career family retirement it's humility harmony happiness and joy now if you have conflict in your life and all of us do If you're tired of conflict in your life, if you walk in today and you like me, you just say, I am just sick and tired of all the conflict. Conflict in the world. Conflict on my social media. Conflict in my family. Conflict in my marriage. Conflict with my kids. Conflict at work. If, I, if you are sick and tired of conflict, of always being drained by the conflict in your life, I just have one thing to say to you today. You picked a great week to come to church or to tune in. Because we're going to look at how to reduce conflict from this example that the Apostle Paul gives us. In fact, he gives us four habits of reducing conflict with others. And I'm going to ask you, I realize most of us need to work on all four of these. I'm going to ask you for this next week, this next month, to focus on one of these four. They're all difficult, but they're all so needed. And I'm going to ask you to focus on which one. Am I going to apply to my marriage? Am I going to apply with my kids? Am I going to apply with my relationships at work or in the neighborhood or with my family? He gives us four habits that will reduce conflict. And I know, I know, I know, this is going to be one of those messages that you are going to want to. You are going to want to share it with all the people you're in conflict with. You're going to be like, you need to, you need to listen to this. And although I would love for you to share that, I'm just telling you that will increase conflict for you. So let God do that. Let them find it through somebody else, not you. And let's all, instead of thinking of, boy, my husband really needs this. Oh, boy, my, my kid really needs it. Boy, my dad, he really needs it. Instead of looking at this message through all the other people in your life who obviously need it, let's focus this message on, okay, Jerry, which of these do I need? to apply to my relationships in my life to reduce conflict. Because Paul says this, the first thing I want you to jot down, number one, if I want to reduce conflict, and that I need to never let pride be my guide. No matter what the relationship is, I should never let pride be my guide. Why? Because pride is the root of every other sin. In fact, Pride is the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven. And let me just tell you, especially if you grew up in church like I grew up in church. I've been in church since I grew up here, right? Pride is like the besetting sin of, Christ, of churchy Christians. Because most people in church struggle with this because we've all got that list. We've got that list of all the sins that we don't do, and we know, oh, we don't do this one and this one and this one and this one and this one. And we are so proud of ourselves for not doing all these sins. And we're like, oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like that sinner over there that Jesus used as an example and how not to pray. Because we struggle with pride. 
And we have to realize that it's really, it's really a pride problem that causes every other sin. In fact, the middle, word, the middle letter in the word pride, I. The middle letter in the word crime, I. The middle letter in the word sin, what's at the center of sin, I. We have an I problem, I, I, I. I want what I want when I want it, and I want it now. So I've got to never let pride be my guide. And this is so counterculture. Because today, in our modern society, we reward narcissism. We do. It's the most arrogant athletes. We want him on our team. It's the most arrogant celebrities. The most self-centered entertainers or politicians. Those are the ones we pay the most accolades and the most money to. It's the way our society works today. It's so counterculture. It's like, well, how many followers do they have? I want to be one. I want to follow them. Because today, the people with the biggest egos get the biggest paychecks. And they get the most press. Philippians 2.3 says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. It's so easy to just read past that verse. There's so much other great things in this passage. Just, oh, every knee will bow, and every and that is so true. But all of these verses matter. We'll get to that. Don't be selfish. Don't try to press others. Do you realize how hard it is to keep this verse? Because selfishness is saying it's all about me. And when we have this it's all about me attitude, it causes conflict. When I want what I want, it causes conflict. Selfishness is about my wants and my fears and my needs and my success and my career and my interests. And we all know people who've walked out of marriages because the marriage was getting in the way of a career. And they're like, no, 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 I've got to do what's best for me. Or they weren't really caring about a relationship or about people they cared about themselves. And the Bible says that selfishness is our number one sin and it causes all of the others. James 3.16 says, For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, circle selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. When you find disorder at your workplace, when you find disorder at your office, you can know there's selfish ambition and jealousy there that are causing it. When you find disorder and confusion in your home, you can know selfishness is causing it. It causes disunity, it causes disorder, it causes confusion, it causes it in marriages, it causes it in politics, it causes it in church, it causes it in HOA meetings. We learn this at a young, young age. We learn selfishness. As toddlers, we learn it's all about me. As kids, we go to the ball field. It's like, if you won't let me be what I want to be, play what I want to play, I'm going to take my ball and go home. That's why the kid with the, that brings the football, he gets to be quarterback. He's no good at it, but he's got the football. If we don't let him play quarterback, none of us play. Selfishness. Now, in Galatians, another book that Paul wrote, he lists 17 effects of living a life of pride 17 results he calls it the work of the flesh and he says when when we live a self-centered self-concerned self-indulgent lifestyle it shows up in all of these other areas of our life and and he starts off by saying things that we would expect things like self-indulgence leads to sexual immorality and wild partying and getting drunk we're like well i don't have a problem with those so i'm probably okay but then he goes on to list 14 other things Things that we do deal with. Relational sins. And this is in Galatians chapter 5, which is interesting because this is the same chapter that the fruits of the Spirit are to come up in in just a couple of verses. He says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, in other words, when you do what comes naturally, because I have a natural desire to be number one. I have a natural desire to think about me first, not you first. And he says, if, if we... Follow the desires of our sinful nature. The results are very clear. And list them. Boy, does he list them. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, 
envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these in case I didn't get one of yours, is what he's saying. Know anybody like this? Please don't point to them. And it's because when we see this in people's lives, they have let pride creep in. When we see this in our lives, we have let pride creep in. And Paul says if you're going to have happiness, if you're going to have joy, if you're going to have harmony in your, in your relationships, then you've got to have humility. So never let pride be your guide. Second habit is the same thing but just the flip side. Maybe you're going, yeah, I don't want to do the pride. One isn't mine. How about this one then? You've heard me say this before. I need to be humble or I'll stumble. And if you want to add to that, I need to be humble or I'll stumble, and my relationship will crumble. Because I'll make everybody grumble. I could go on and on. If I'm not humble, my relationships will crumble. Humility is the basis and the foundation for every great marriage. Humility is the basis and the foundation for every great parent-child relationship. Every great friendship. Because in humility, we don't act like we know it all. Don't you hate all the know-it-alls in our life? Do you have a know-it-all in your family? You know that person. You're thinking about Thanksgiving and Uncle so-and-so. You can't tell him anything because he already knows everything. And even if you whip out a phone, it's nice now that at least we have Google. And you Google it and say, well, no, actually Wikipedia says it. He's like, well, Wikipedia doesn't count. They refuse to see the facts because they already know it all. It's a matter of pride. In humility, we don't act like we know it all. We treat each other with respect. We give the other person more honor. Verse 3 says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Circle that word humble. I asked you to circle that up in the top. Circle it again. Be humble thinking of others as better than yourself. This is the opposite of what our culture teaches us because our culture teaches to do, I've got to do what's best for me. I've got to look out for number one. I've got to think about me. I've got to live for myself. I've got to do what makes me happy. If it feels good, do it. That's culture. And all of these selfish, self-centered, narcissistic rules that we've been taught all through our life. Paul comes and says, no, 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 no. Be humble and think of others first. All through our life, we've learned these rules. Since we're toddlers, when, I mean, when they're barely walking, they're learning this because we dote on the toddler. We take all the pictures. I'm the center of attention. When I cry, everybody comes running. You know, by the way, when, if you've got toddlers in your life, you know, you know, toddlers greet you. They have their special greeting. You know, preschoolers, you know, when they walk into... When they walk in the Nana Papa's house, they, they, do you have a prize for me? You know, he's like, I just walk in the door, people give me gifts. We're ruining our grandkids, I know. I told Nancy, stop, 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 first service. Because, you know, can we go to Target, you know? Or Papa, he has five below cards. They know. They come into my office like, do you have any chocolate? No, you got a five below card? Of course I do. Here you go. And we're ruining our, we're teaching them. They're the center of, a, we're spoiling them. We have that right. Our, our kids, same way, we, everything revolves around all of us. We teach, our society, our culture teaches, you, got, you can be anything you want to be. you got to, all these things, out of balance. What we don't teach is this word, humble. Be humble and think of others as better than yourself. And humility is probably the most misunderstood quality that we need in life. Because a lot of people, we, we, mess, we think that humility means going around saying, I'm no good. I'm nothing. I'm a big zero. I'm zip. I can't do anything right. No, that's not humility. That's false humility. That's just degrading yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. You see the difference there? It's not thinking less of yourself, oh, I'm no good. That's not humility. It's false humility. 
Humility is you just don't think of yourself. You think about other people. And the more you think about other people, the more humble you are. If you were to walk into this room to church, and you were to think, what does everybody else think about me? Then it would all be about me, right? How do I look? Now, I know most of you at our church at least, I mean, you go to some churches and they are like decked out to the nines, aren't they? I mean, when you go to some, 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 some churches, people are like, oh, man, they got it all put together. They are like, they're like dressed for success, dressed to impress, dressed in no less. And I know, not our church, you look around and you're like, I mean, we don't even look like we're going to church. That's why I tell, tell you, you've got to tell your neighbors you're going to church on Sundays. Because you're dressed like you're going to Cracker Barrel. Right? And we love you for it. We love you. You're accepted that way. But they're looking out at you going, oh, he's in shorts and he's in shorts and flip-flops. She's got all her tats showing. They're not going to church. What kind of church is that? Oh, yeah, they're really going to church. You're here. They're here. You've got to tell them, though, we're going to church. And they're like, hmm, yeah, I think they're going to Cracker Barrel. They come with me to church. And, and we love you for that. But you know, you know those places where you go, everybody's, everybody's decked out, everybody, and it seems like everybody who walks in, or maybe you've been there, and maybe you've been part of that. You're like, every hair's in place. You, you're yourself, and you walk in, and you're like, I wonder if I look okay. I wonder if everybody sees me. I wonder what they're thinking of me. Do you see that, that how self-centered that is? When you walk in a room and you're wondering how does everybody respond and look at you, I can tell you what they think of you. Nothing. They're not thinking of you. You know what they're thinking? I wonder how everybody looks at me. I wonder if I look okay. I wonder if I... We have a whole room full of people all thinking that. And nobody's thinking of anybody. Humility is when you walk in and you go... You don't say, I wonder how everybody sees me. You walk in and go, I wonder how I can help all these people. I wonder what's going on in their life. I wonder what they're going through with high inflation and gas prices and, and kids out of school. I wonder what problems they're going through. See, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's just not thinking of yourself. It's thinking of everyone else and what their problems are and what's going on in their life. And those are the humblest people around us. In other words, humility is not putting myself down. It's building other people up. Prideful people tear people down to build themselves up. Humble people build people up. Great people make people feel great. How do people feel after they've spent time with you? Great people make people feel great. Little people belittle people. In other words, hum humility is not devaluing me. It's valuing others even more. It's what you think about other people. He says, be humble. Thinking of others better as better than yourselves. So why should I be, why should I be humble? I mean, honest question. Especially for naturally prideful people, naturally self-centered people, is we ask, why should I be humble? What's in it for me? Because that's who we are, right? I'll tell you what's in it for you. God has a lot of promises if we will learn the joy of humility. In fact, there are, I think, more promises about humility than any other thing other than generosity in the Bible. Let me just give you a few, th few things that God promises. If we learn to live a humble life, if you live a life dependent on him, Jesus is Lord. Every knee, my knee is bowing and declaring Jesus is Lord. If you live a life of thinking about others more than thinking of yourself, God says, here's his promise. He says, I'll give you my presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. -E -E. Not presence, like here's your present. Unwrap it. You know, here's your five below card, right? His presence. He promised you his presence. He says, I'll give you my power. He says, I'll give you my peace. He says, I'll make you prosperous. There's the present I was looking for. Yes. God even says presence. I'll make you prosperous. That's a promise. He says, I'll make you successful. He promises to make you successful and prosperous and give you his peace and his power. And he says, I'll give you great honor. This is the very thing everybody wants in life. All those narcissistic people are after all of this in life. And God says, no, 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 the way up is down. He says, you're not going to get this through pride. You're not going to get this through bragging. You're not going to get this through boasting or pretending that you're somebody you're not. 
or being a poser and posing. It comes through humility. God says, I bless the humble person. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives favor to the humble. Notice the good and the bad there. It says God opposes, circle opposes. The Bible says that God hates pride. People are like, does God hate anything? Oh, no, God doesn't hate anything. God's love. He loves everything. Oh, yeah? There are some things that God hates. One of the things that God hates is ego, arrogance, pride, conceit, self-centeredness, self-promotion. In fact, God hates pride. He opposes the proud. He comes against the proud. The moment that I'm prideful, and we are, when we cross that line into pride, and we do, we are not on God's side anymore. He's opposing us. I'm on the opposite side of God. Even if you're on the right side of an issue. Like I know a lot of people that they're on a, it's like a godly issue, it's a biblical issue, I'm, I'm on this right side of issue. But the way you do it in your arrogance and the way you do it in your pridefulness erases the good you might do in supporting that cause, that issue, that, that statement. God says, no, 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 you have to do the right thing with the right attitude. Every time we're prideful, we're on the opposite side of God. So we must never let my pride be my guide, and I've always got to be humble or I'll stumble. My relationships will crumble. Here's the third thing. Maybe this will be, this sound one sounds easy, but it's not easy. And we don't do it. If I'm going to reduce conflict in my relationships, in my life, I need to learn the lost art of paying attention. The lost art of paying attention. Did you get that? Wake up. Pay attention. Lost art of paying attention. Especially if we're going to have better relationships. Part of, part of learning the lost art of paying attention teaches us humility. Because we now live in an ADD world. We live in an ADD, attention deficit disorder world. Our relationships are infected with attention deficit disorder. Our marriages are infected with attention deficit disorder. Our employer-employee relationships, our sibling relationships, our relationships with our kids and our parents, all of them are infected with ADD. Everybody's got it. Why? Because our tools and our technology have taught us, have conditioned us, have trained us to no longer pay attention to the people who are around us and in front of us. We pay attention to screens more than we pay attention to people around us. Now, I'm not saying to throw your phones away. I'm just saying put them down. Put them down at the dinner table. Put them down in the car. Please put them down in the car. Focus on the people. Focus on the attention on the people who are right around you. Because we've always got our AirPods in, our earbuds in. We've always got our screens in front of our face. And we no longer pay attention to the people around our lives. In fact, we distract ourselves from the people around our lives with all the technology in our life. Somebody could be dying or in deep pain and we miss it. Why? I was on my agenda, my email, my, my interests, my, my Instagram, my timeline, my feed. How many people do we walk by every day who is in need or they're hurting? And I'm not talking about strangers on the street. I'm talking about people that ride the church with us in the car. I'm talking about people that live under our, uh, under our roof. I'm talking about people who, who will be at that Thanksgiving, you know, that's I mean, they're in our family, or at least they got invited. I don't know how they got invited, but they're kind of close to family kind of a thing. We have to learn the lost art of paying attention, because the Bible says this in verse 4. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. In other words, I can't just be interested in my agenda and my team and my career and my favorite hobbies. I've got to be interested in other, other people as well. Parents in particular, this is so important. Grandparents too. This is so important. That we take an interest 
in what our kids and our, our grandkids are interested in. We want them to be interested in what we're interested in, but they're not. So we're like, well, if you're not going to be interested in what I'm interested in, I'm not, I, I don't know how many time for you. I, I had lunch with a, grand, a granddad. This is, oh, this is probably 10 years ago when, I don't know when text messaging started. Maybe it was more like 15 years ago. And, um, and this grandfather looked at me and he said, my grandkids don't ever call me. They don't ever pick up the phone and call me. I said, no, they don't, they don't call. Their whole generation doesn't call. They text. He's like, well, I don't text. And I said, well, if you don't text, how are you going to have a relationship with your grandkids? They'll have to call me. They don't call. They don't pick up when I call. I said, well, why don't you text? Well, because I just don't. I said, well, you're a stupid granddad. Actually, I said foolish, but it means the same thing. I said, you're foolish. What do you mean? I said, you're foolish. Your grandkids are 16, 17, 18 years old. That's how old they were at the time. I said, and you're saying they need to communicate the way I want to be communicated to, the way I communicate. I'm not going to be interested in what they're interested in. He's like, yeah, because that's how I am. I said, so you don't care? You, you don't care that your grandkids don't go to church, that you don't have any spiritual influence, you don't have any influence in their life? They're purposely, per, perfectly happy not having a relationship with you. He says, yeah, that's the problem. They don't call. I said, no, the problem is you won't text. You won't learn something new because you don't love them enough to want to be in their life. Well, in fact, all of us, we need to look at ourselves, okay? Because supposedly we're supposed to be the mature ones. Supposedly we're supposed to be the Christ followers. Yet we don't love our lost or failing kids and grandkids enough to make an adjustment, a technological adjustment. Well, text is just too hard. Look, texting was hard back when it was 999-444-666, okay? Maybe. Now you got a whole keyboard. In fact, you can just talk to your watch and it'll text for you. It won't misspell as many words as you misspell, right? And that's, the, that's our problem. We are so self-centered that if people don't have my interest, then... To H with them. That's our attitude as Christ followers and believers. Man, we should be humble. And we should have interests, be interested in what are they interested in. And I get it. You might not like their team. You might not like what they like. You might not like their sport. But if you're going to be the mature one, if you're going to be the humble one, if you're going to be the one that says, Jesus is Lord and I'm bowing my knee, then we're going to have to be the ones that make that adjustment or we're just foolish, should I say stupid. So let me just make it worse. What about your wife and your husband? Are you interested in what they have to say? I saw this meme several times this week where the husband says, my wife says I don't listen to her or something like that. I think that's what she said. Are you interested in what your kids are saying? This isn't natural. By nature, I couldn't care less what you think. I couldn't care less what you're talking about. I'm not really interested in what you're interested in. I'm only interested in what I'm interested in because that's by nature who we are. We are self-centered, prideful, not humble. God says, you want to really be joyful and happy? You've got to learn to change your frame of reference. You've got to learn the lost art of paying attention because harmony doesn't come from me thinking about me all the time. It comes from me being interested in what other people are interested in and caring about what other people are caring about and concerned about what other people are concerned about. So let me ask you, are you only interested in what concerns you? Do you get bored when your friends start talking about stuff that just doesn't flip your switch? And you're thinking, get me out of here, you know. Oh, hey, got to go, you know. Do you find your attention drifting? We all need to learn the lost art of paying attention. It's an act of love. And when, when I look you in the eye and, and I listen, what I'm saying to you is I love you and you matter to me. I'm giving you my attention. I'm giving you my time. And my life is made up of my time. That's what we communicate when we look someone in the eye and we put this down. Now look, I'm the worst offender, okay? So like I said, let's not look at this message as how can someone else apply this? Boy, they really need this. Let's look at this and say, yeah, I need this too. Last one, fourth thing we need to do 
Maybe those first three are hard and you're going to like this one until you hear me give you three bullet points under it. I need to ask, what would Jesus do? And you're like, oh, that's cute. That's why I'm like, that sounds like the things the teenagers wear around their wrist. WWJD, what would Jesus do? Philippians, it, it's not, it wasn't invented to go around a wrist or on a bracelet. It actually comes from this verse. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. If I really care about relationships, if I, if I really want to lower the conflict in my life and raise the harmony and have more happiness in, in my life and more joy, and I'm not going to let my pride be my God, I'm, not going to, I'm going to be humble or I'll stumble, and I'm going to learn the lost art of paying attention. And the fourth thing I'm going to say is in this situation, in this conflict, in this problem, what would Jesus do? In this time when someone's feeling guilty, what would Jesus do? In this time when somebody's worried in my family, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do at the office? What would Jesus do in this situation? What would Jesus do on the golf course? What would Jesus do on I-4 when someone's cutting me off and running me off the road? We ask that over and over again. Jesus is Lord. What would Jesus do? And we'll always come up with a humble answer, by the way. We'll always come up with an answer that builds harmony if we ask this question. You say, well, I don't know what Jesus would do. How would I know how Jesus would act at my school or in my company or in my HOA or in my marriage? How would I know how Jesus would treat my wife or treat my husband? Well, fortunately, Paul gives us three examples. There's at least three things that Jesus would do. And he gives them to us right here. The first one I want you to write down is I don't demand what I think I deserve. That's acting like Jesus. I don't demand my rights. I don't demand what I think I deserve. Now, I know that we're celebrating Independence Day and we're all about independence. We're all about our rights. But look what it says in Philippians 2. It says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. You could put rights. Jesus is God, but he came to earth. He humbled himself. And even though he's God, he did not demand his rights. He empties himself. You realize how counterculture this is? Because we're brought up in our culture, especially if you grew up here in America, where we're brought to say, I have my rights. I demand my rights. It is my right to do this. And yes, it is. You do have those rights. But it doesn't mean that you get to demand it if you're going to be a Christ follower. It's my right to do this. I demand my rights. Well, then you're not being like Jesus. Because there's a better way. That's what the Bible's teaching. There's a better way for you to get your needs met than to demand your rights. There's a better way for you to gain influence over people than to be demanding your rights. There are better ways. In fact, when we demand our rights, when we push our demands, it just makes people more resistant, more retaliatory towards us. The Christ-like thing to do is to say, you know what? I don't demand what I think I deserve. I can learn to be tender without surrender. I can learn to be understanding without demanding. I can learn to get my needs met a different way without blowing people away. We can do it by being nice, being Christ-like. What would Jesus do? Am I understanding or am I demanding? Second thing that Jesus gives us as an example is I look for ways that I can serve. Humbling yourself and serving them. I was at a conference with Henry Blackaby one time, very small conference, only 40 of us, and he says, you know what? We don't mind serving people until they treat us like a servant. But Jesus came to serve and to be treated like that servant. It says he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. If we want to be like Jesus, we're going to have to learn to serve. It's the exact opposite of our culture. Our culture teaches that the more people who serve you, the more important you are. If you have 100 people doing all of your bidding, all your minions, they're out there doing your bidding, they're serving you every whim, then you are so important. But in God's economy, it's not how many people are serving you that makes you important. It's how many people are you serving that makes you important in his economy. The more people you serve, the more important you are. Self-esteem does not come from our salary. Self-esteem does not come from our status. Self-esteem does not come from our stuff. Self-esteem comes from 
service. And the more you give your life away, the more God blesses you with honor. It's the Mother Teresa principle. Mother Teresa served the begging, dying beggars, the lepers in Calcutta. People who, what could they do for her? Nothing. She did that selflessly, knowing they could never give her anything. And God raised her to a level of prominence where she could walk the halls of the U.S. Capitol or the United Nations in New York, and people trembled in their boots. Because the way, God's way says the way up is down. And God says the way to honor is humility. He says the way to be great is to become the servant of all. We can practice this. We can develop this habit. And we develop it not in the big moments of life. We develop it in the little moments, the day-to-day daily disciplines. It's revealed in the big moments. When you're in a big crisis, that's when everybody disguises. Oh, does he have character? Does she have character or not? But that's not where character is built. Character is not built in the big crises of the world or of our life. Character is built in the small daily disciplines. It's revealed on those big days. Last thing, I do what's right even when it's painful. What would Jesus do? He would do what's right, no matter how painful it was. Verse 8, when he appeared in a human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. He did the right thing, even though it is excruciatingly painful to him. That's what it means to do the right thing, even when it's painful. He modeled it, and there's a reward, because God raised him up to honor. In verse 9 to 11, therefore God elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice it says that one day everyone in heaven on that judgment day, they are all, everyone who has ever lived will be gathered, and it says every knee will bow. Every human being who's ever lived, from dictator to despot, to desperado, they will all bow their knee before Jesus and pay him the highest honor and will confess with their mouth, in other words, finally admit that Jesus Christ is Lord and give glory to the Father. One day, even the atheist, one day, even the athlete, even the mogul, even the high-tech types that we see now, when people ask you the question, what's the world coming to? You can tell them, well, I know what the world's coming to. One day every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's encouraging to me that whether they're involved in idolatry or denial or atheism or narcissism at the end, everybody who's ever been created by God is going to bow before Jesus and confess that he is who he says he is. Every nationality, every creed, every language, every political stripe, every religion, even the politicians and the rock stars and the homemakers and the scientists and the athletes, they're all going to say the same thing. Every single person, Jesus is Lord. And it's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. You'll either do it now in love or you'll do it later in judgment. But one day you will bow the knee and you'll recognize I'm not God. God is God. Jesus is Lord. And, and I don't have any way to get into heaven except by the grace, putting my faith in the grace of Jesus Christ. If any other way would have worked, then God would not have wasted Jesus' life. Because you're not God. You're, you're not Lord. God is God. Jesus is Lord. It is a humbling statement to say Jesus is Lord. That I'm not a master of my own fate. I'm not in control of my own life. No, you're not. In fact, you don't control most of the most important things in your life. You didn't control when you were born. You didn't control where you were born. You didn't control who you were born to. You didn't pick your parents. Most of what we matters in life, we don't get to choose. You didn't control how smart you are. You didn't control the talents and the gifts that you have. God did all that. He gave you the brain that he gave you. He gave you the body that he gave you. One day you're going to confess before Jesus, Jesus, you are Lord. So when we stop pridefully pretending that we're God, that we're in control of our own life, our own destiny, I want to urge you to bow the knee to Christ, even if you're already a Christ follower, 
Sometimes we can stand up in our own life. We need to bow back down and go, no, Jesus, you are my Lord. And when you're tempted, you say it. Jesus is Lord. It helps you with temptation. And when you're discouraged, you say it. Jesus is Lord. It helps you with worry. It gives you encouragement. When you're fatigued and you're tired and you're lonely and you're grieving, you say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And it gives you the courage, the, the, the energy to keep on going one more day. And it may look like you're on the wrong side of winning right now. It may look like you're losing, but Jesus is Lord. It may look like the problems that you're facing are insurmountable and they're, they're, they're going to over, overtake you. Like you're never going to get out of jet, but Jesus is Lord. Or your marriage is never going to get back on track, but Jesus is Lord. Or your kids are never going to get off drugs, but Jesus is Lord. Or your health is never going to be healed, but Jesus is Lord. And it may be that you feel like all of the circumstances of life is aimed against you, but Jesus is Lord. Bow the knee to Him. It's called humility. And it's the path, the only path, to true joy and happiness. Would you pray with me as we ask God to help us? Dear God, why don't you just pray this to Him? Agree with me. Say, Dear God, I want to be what you want me to be. Will you make that your prayer? I want to be what you want me to be. I want to live a happy, joyful life. And I want to live in harmony with my relationships. And I certainly don't want to live with any more conflict. So please help me to do it your way and not the world's way. Help me to remember, never let pride be my guide. To not have this attitude of it's all about me. And have that get in the way of what you want me to do. Help me to be humble so I don't stumble. Help me to be honest about my weaknesses and not think less of myself. But just think about myself less. Help me to think more about others and more about you. To not be so self-obsessed with what, other, what do other people think about me. And dear God, help me to learn the lost art of paying attention. To not just be interested in my stuff. Help me to be interested in what other people are interested in too. And to show it in love by paying attention and listening. And when I'm in tough times, help me to ask, what would Jesus do? Help me to not demand what I think I deserve, but to be like Jesus instead. Help me to look for ways around me where I can serve people like Jesus did. And this week, Lord, help me to do what's right even when it's painful and difficult. Because, God, I know if I walk in humility and dependence before you, you've promised to reward me with all the promises from your word. So today, Jesus, I bow my knee and I acknowledge you are Lord of my life. I want you to be the manager of my life. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to be the director of my life. I want you to call the shots in my life. You are God and I'm not. Help me to remember that. Bring me to my knees. I humbly ask you all of this. In the name of Jesus, my Lord.